Hi, I am Robin Black, and this is Robin Thinks. This is my very first episode of my very first podcast, so uh, just bear with me. It might be a little rough. It might be a little rocky. I'm still kind of trying to figure out um, really the format that I want to do this in. Uh, I grew up in a very fundamentalist background. I grew up in foster homes, so I kind of grew up in a, in a number of different uh, religious traditions. My first kind of long-term foster parents were Nazarenes. My second long-term foster parents were Mormons. Uh, I actually moved in with my biological mom when I was 13 and got enveloped into a very fundamentalist non-denominational church. Uh, so that was my junior high and high school years. Then I went to a Mormon college for a little while. Uh, it used to be called Ricks College. Now it's BYU Rexburg. Then I went to what I consider to be a very liberal church, ironically. And this should tell you something about the church background that I came from. It was Cornerstone Church in San Antonio, Pastor John Hagee. Looking back now, I understand that that was actually an extremely conservative church. But at the time, it seemed to be very liberal from the background that I came out of. Uh, I went to that church for, I think, about two or three years. And then I was a part of a Christian theater ministry for 10 years. So I was a missionary for 10 years. That organization had some very serious leadership issues and some significant integrity issues. I was by far not the first person to, to recognize the abusive nature or abusive tendencies. But people that had come before me had done the quote-unquote good Christian thing and had tried to approach the leadership quietly and were also very quietly um, kicked out of the ministry. And so I wrote a very long series of very long emails, which I sent out very publicly addressing these issues. I did it in such a way they couldn't just brush everything under the carpet and pretend that it wasn't happening. There were a number of things that I brought up that I addressed that people were completely and totally unaware of. I think it goes without saying that I was kicked out of that ministry. And once that happened, I think it probably also comes as no surprise that I kind of walked away from Christianity and religion in general. And that was the point at which I started deconstructing. That wasn't a word back then, but I know it's what I started doing. It's basically just questioning your beliefs. It's questioning all of these things that you've been raised to believe that you act on and it, it doesn't work out for you. So you have to go back and question, wait a minute, I was raised to believe this is true and this is true and this is true and then I did it all and it was disastrous. So what's going on? That's what deconstruction is, is it's going back. It's just, it's just questioning all of the things that you were brought up to believe because they sound great in theory, but they don't always work in real world practical application. So that's where you have to go back and kind of figure it out. That's what deconstruction is. I like to look at it as every orange has fruit in the middle of it. It has something of value. It has food. But it's, it's wrapped in a skin. It's wrapped in a like orange peel, right? You don't eat the whole orange. If you eat the whole orange, you get sick. But if you peel it and you throw the peel away, then you can take the fruit. So every one of these Christian books actually has some 
legitimate fruit in it. There's something good to take from all of these books, but you have to learn how to peel it first and throw the peel away. Otherwise, it makes you sick. So the first book that I wanted to start with was I Kiss Dating Goodbye because this book probably more than any others has just caused so many people so many problems. But at the same time, (laughs) one of the reasons I wanted to uh, start with this book is because people took very different things from it. And I'm one of those people that took something very different away from it. I found it to be a very freeing and liberating book. But I think part of that has to do with what phase of my life I was in when I read it. So I think what makes a huge difference is did you read this book when you were uh, 13, 14, 15? Did you read it when you were 18, 19, 20? Or did you read it in your 30s? So I read this book at a very different time and in a very different mindset than I think a lot of uh, teenagers, young adults did. So to me, it was very freeing. And I think that's why I want to make sure that there's some really good stuff in this book that I don't want people, and especially women, I don't want women to miss out on some of the really valuable things that this book has to offer. I Kiss Dating Goodbye starts off with this uh, dream. This girl, Anna, has a dream. And she's her, it's her wedding. It's her picture-perfect wedding. Um, you know, white dress, you know, her knight in shining armor, standing at the altar, all of her friends and family. This day that women have dreamed about forever and ever and ever has finally arrived. And she's standing with David, her groom. All of a sudden... All these women just start walking up and standing next to David, like right in the middle of her wedding. And so she asked David, she says, David, who are these women? What's going on? They're girls from my past, he answered sadly. Anna, they don't mean anything to me now, but I've given a part of my heart to each of them. I thought your heart was mine, she said. It is, it is, he pleaded. Everything that's left is yours. A tear rolled down Anna's cheek. Then she woke up. Okay, so here we are in just kind of the what you might call the opening scene of the book. And there's already a lot to talk about here. The first thing I want to talk about is you always have to remember that this was written by an 18-year-old boy. And the reason I call him a boy and not a man is that I think it's really dangerous when we call 10, 11, 12-year-old boys men because when you call children men it implies that the only thing you have to do to be a man is just have a certain appendage in my personal view in my opinion manhood is about responsibility it's not about a certain age and it's definitely not about a certain body part men are people that at the very least are taking care of themselves And more often than not, they have some kind of responsibility for other people. That might be, they might be someone's boss. They might be someone's, uh, a parent, a husband. You don't have to be a parent or a husband to be a man, but you absolutely have to be responsible for at least yourself. And at this point in time, I mean, he's 18. I'm going to guess he probably still lives at home with his parents. So this is not someone that I would personally call a man. So we have to remember that this is actually written by a boy. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's not a lot that we can learn from him. But you also have to remember that boys are raised on Disney 
just as much as girls are. And while this is changing, it's very important to understand that he would have grown up watching like 70s, 80s Disney, which was still very knight in shining armor rescues damsel in distress. And even today, these, these themes are very prevalent in our culture. It comes out in his writing. He would have been 22 going on 23 when it was published, but that doesn't mean that's when he wrote it. You have to remember, it takes a very long time to write a book, go through the whole entire editing process, and then get it published. There's, there's a whole lot that goes into that. So it's very reasonable to assume this is probably a two to three year process, which means that when he wrote the book, he would have been 18, maybe 19 years old. So here's Anna. It's her big wedding day. She's standing at the altar with her beloved David and all of a sudden all these girls start coming up and standing next to David and Anna's confused. They're ruining her the day that she's dreamed about for most of her life and she asks David what's going on um, and he says these are girls from my past. He answers sadly um, but I've given part of my heart to each of them. And Anna responds, I thought your heart was mine. Okay, this is where we need to, again, remember, this is written by an 18-year-old. The truth is, the reality is, hearts are very, they're very complex, but they're very amazing. We're going to love a lot of people in our lifetime. So this idea that by the time you marry someone, you haven't loved numerous people. There's, there's actually kind of a problem with that. First of all, we need to understand that love is an action. It is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. The emotion comes from the action. Love is something that we actually have to learn how to do. The problem with loving people is that we have needs, we have wants, we have desires, and we have a drive to meet our own needs, our own wants, our own desires. The deal with relationship is that relationships demand, this is why relationships are really good and really hard, because relationships demand that you're constantly evaluating whose needs need to take precedent. So relationships are basically one long conflict because you have two people that have wants, needs, and desires. And they're a constant balancing act between whose need is most urgent in the moment. And these are, these are things you have to learn how to do. It does not come naturally to us to lay down our own desire for the benefit of someone else. These are things we have to learn how to do. And every relationship that we're in is a learning experience. And hopefully the goal is if we are actually learning from every one of our experiences, we will get better and better and better and better. So this idea that you're supposed to make a lifelong commitment to someone without having spent any time practicing 
laying down your own wants, needs, and desires for the benefit of someone else, how do you think that's actually going to go? Um, we're going to love a lot of people in our lifetime. And this, this idea, again, remember, 18-year-old boy, this idea that you love one person and only one person for the entire rest of your life is extremely naive. It's the sort of fantasy fairy tale of an 18-year-old that's been raised on Disney. Okay, so the other thing I want to point out in this sort of opening scene is when David says, they're girls from my past. They don't mean anything to me now. Okay, we've all heard kind of the, there's sort of a trope. When a man cheats on his wife, he says, it didn't mean anything right? So let's, let's talk about what he's actually saying and why this is problematic. Like somehow we are supposed to be relieved that person that we're in a relationship with is running around using women to fulfill his own needs, wants, desires. What happens is in a lot of relationships, one party in the relationship reach sort of this point where they go, well, my needs aren't getting met. I just give and give and give. My needs aren't going to met. Who's going to meet my needs? The whole point of being in a committed relationship is that I take my resources and I feed them into you and you take your resources and you feed them into me. So as long as there is a fair and equal exchange of resources, uh, then you have a fair relationship. If you take the resources that you have committed to putting into this relationship and you instead go and put them into another relationship, then you're committing relational fraud. So for instance, if a married man starts having an affair with a single woman, the married man obviously only has a tiny amount of resources to commit to that relationship, right? Because his primary relationships are probably in his marriage and or family. On the other hand, the single person has all kinds of resources because they are not married. Their resources are not diverted. This is why it's called fraud. It's kind of like selling a used car to, to five different people. In the, in the next um, section, the next section is called Betrayed. And I want to read what Joshua Harris writes here. He says, there are relationships I can only look back on with regret. I do my best to forget. I laugh them off as part of the game of love that everyone plays. I know that God has been faithful to forgive as I've asked him to. And I know that various girls have forgiven me because I've asked them to. But I'm still very aware of the consequences of my selfishness. I gave my heart away too many times and I took from girls what wasn't mine. You understand the contrast between David saying, they don't mean anything to me. And Joshua, the, the writer talking about his own intentions and his own regrets. There's a couple things I want to point out here. Number one, he says, I know that the various girls have forgiven me because I've asked them to. This is so important. What happens in Christianity all too often is we talk a lot about sinning against God, but we don't talk enough about sinning against other people. And I think that we spend a lot of time, you know, talking about like repentance and atonement as it, as it relates to God. Jesus died on a cross. 
all of the sin, any, any ways in which we have sinned against God, those are covered. What's interesting is that, especially evangelical Christianity, it's been my experience, they spend so much time worrying about how we sin against God when that's not what God's worried about. In my opinion, God keeps trying to get us to, to look at what we are doing to other people, our relationships with other people. So what's, I want to say, a little revolutionary is he actually apologized to the women that he feels like he wronged or that he hurt in some way. And that especially in young relationships, it has not been my experience that they have a very um, strong understanding of the necessity of apologizing to people whom you have wronged. Uh, let alone even admitting that you've wronged someone in the first place. So that's why even though this kid is 18 years old, he shows a lot of maturity that I personally have not found in evangelical Christianity. He literally identifies, I took from girls what wasn't mine. That is such a deep and profound insight to have this 18 year old boy actually recognize and understand that that it is even possible that you can take something even if you don't have sex with her and that's another thing that I found is that men have this tendency it's been my experience to believe that everything is hunky-dory as long as you're not having sex with a girl like that's the only way that you can harm or injure a girl is by having sex with her. And if you're, as long as, you can date all the girls you want, you can play with their hearts, you can play around, you can do whatever you want, and you're still Mr. Good Guy as long as you don't have sex with them. That is so completely untrue. And so I don't want it to get missed that Joshua Harris actually understands that you can harm women in ways other than just having sex with them. In fact, this next section is called Living for Myself. My own self-centered approach to romance started young. Even though I grew up in a Christian home, by the time I reached junior high, I had embraced a very ungodly attitude towards relationships. I didn't fear God. Despite my parents' diligence and godly example, I was living for sin and my own pleasure. Once again, this is where I give him props for being genuinely sincere, but there are also like a lot of places where he moves into this very pharisaical, um, like fault piety, so to speak. I don't even think it's a fault piety. I think he, he genuinely felt it. But again, it's that it's everything is dramatic in the life of an 18 year old. If there's anything that, that's kind of like the message of the gospel, it's, you know, just be free. It's really okay. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to screw up. It's going to be okay. Uh, in the next paragraph, and this is the next thing I wanted to talk about, he says, the older guys on my gymnastics team bragged about the different girls they had slept with. I was mesmerized by their stories. Sin sounded so enticing. With a friend, I stole pornographic magazines from a bookstore and poured over them, stoking the fire of my own sinful cravings. Girls were nothing more than objects to satisfy my desire. He actually gets that. He actually understands that. This is a this is a really important point. This is a this is a what I believe to be a very genuine young man genuinely wanting to honor God, honor women and honor himself. 
in my in my opinion and my experience that is really really rare in fact he even he even talks about it right here he says the older guys on my gymnastics team bragged about the different girls they had slept with okay by adulthood i'm gonna hope that most people have figured this out by now teenagers lie a lot a lot of times what's happening is Teenagers are being pressured into having sex by other teenagers that are not having sex. By and large, uh, more often than not, it's the teenagers that are not talking about sex that are probably having sex. Because sexuality for girls, and even to some degree, you know, teenage boys, it's still, it's very steeped in shame. And so almost invariably, the teenagers that are bragging about it are more than likely not having sex. The teenagers that are actually having sex are usually the ones that are very quiet when conversations of sex pop up. The fact that I remained a virgin during those years is, to be honest, a miracle. It had everything to do with God's mercy and nothing to do with any self-control or virtue on my part. Okay, once again, that's probably not a miracle. There are far, far, far far more teenagers actually making it all the way through high school, still a virgin, than you would believe by listening to them talk. Okay, so one of the things that I want to stop and talk about here is the vast difference between the way man, like the collective of men, like to view themselves and the realities of what we actually know men to be. Men create Disney movies, okay? They do. Walt Disney was a dude. All, almost every chick flick that we watched growing up, they're all made by men. So men have this very noble and virtuous view or image of themselves. The Bible, on the other hand, is like 2,000 year history of the reality of man. Just as an example, this has been a big controversy recently. David raped Bathsheba. Solomon had 300 wives and 600 concubines. Okay, this is the reality of men. When men have power, this is what they do with it. But these are not the stories that men tell about themselves. This is why I don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, but I absolutely believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And the reason for that is it's pretty much a 2,000 year history of man's screw ups. It is not the story that man tells about himself. Um, it's estimated, and I think this is probably a very low estimate because let's face it, it's kind of hard to get accurate statistics it's estimated that as many as 13 percent of all college students suffer sexual assault of some kind college age women who are in college are three times more likely to be raped and college age women who don't go to college are four times more likely than any other woman to be raped that is the reality of men. That's the reality of men that men don't want to talk about and men don't want to face. So here's the thing. Here's the destructive damage of purity culture. Purity culture would be less damaging, did not excuse male behavior as boys will be boys. So here's the thing. If I was a mother, being 
absolutely honest and realistic about how men raise boys, especially in patriarchal culture, I can tell you right now that it would be my deepest desire that my daughter's first time would be with someone like Joshua Harris and definitely not like the majority of men that he talks about in this book. The truth is at at 15, 16, 17, sex is not going to be good, okay? The best you can hope for at that age is that a boy will treat a girl with decency, dignity, respect. I would be delighted if a boy actually um, really went above and beyond to try and make sure that my daughter's first time was special. It should be special. Because here's the thing. Here's the reality. How many of these girls spent their entire time in high school fighting off boys, fighting off the groping boys, dreaming of their wedding when they could present themselves to their husbands as virgins, only to be raped in college or raped in high school? Here's the thing that I believe about God, and and I, I believe is shown through the Bible. God deals with the reality of men all the time. God is not blinded by the truth of who and what men are. Men like to create all kinds of fantasy fairy tales about themselves that actually do not hold up in the real world. The other thing that what I believe to be true of 18-year-old Joshua Harris is that if he had had sex with my teenage daughter, I think he would have kept his mouth shut about it. Um, That being said, my concern with young men like Joshua Harris is that um, while I, I, I think there's a high likelihood they wouldn't tell anyone about it, the problem is their reasons for doing that. It wouldn't necessarily be out of protecting my daughter. It very well could be out of his own shame. And out of his own shame, my concern, of course, would be that he would shame my daughter, that he would treat her as if she were some type of Jezebel or Eve and blame her for tempting him or blame her for destroying his precious purity. So in the next section, Josh talks about his first serious relationship. And he mentions that he's a sophomore in high school. And so he's only uh, probably about 15 at this time. So on the one hand, I wouldn't necessarily expect a 15-year-old to be the epitome of relational maturity. But on the other hand, if you're going to write a book about relationships, then your standards uh, absolutely need to hold up to scrutiny. So here's part of the problem. Uh, His first kind of serious girlfriend, her name was Kelly, and uh, he mentions that she had just become a Christian. Now, here's the problem. There is this idea, and, and this is where I would say Josh's patriarchy starts to come out. One of the problems of patriarchy is that there's this idea that, you know, women are property and we exist for the pleasure of men. So one of the problems is that Kelly has just become a Christian. And in recovery groups, like in AA, NA, you know, all the A's, 
they they strongly discourage you from dating for like the first year that you're in recovery, that you're um, starting to, to battle your addictions. And the reason for that is because you need to focus on your own recovery. And the same thing would be true for a brand new Christian. But what happens is anytime a pretty girl walks into a church, it's kind of like a free for all. It's like a feeding frenzy. So, you know, I've been in singles ministries in churches and they're meat markets. Churches are not a safe place for women to actually focus on their own spiritual development and their own spiritual growth. So here we have uh, young Joshua and we have, you know, brand new Christian Kelly. Um, and instead of kind of letting her focus on her own development, he boyfriends her up. <laughs> and here's the best part. She was beautiful, blonde, and two inches taller than me, but I didn't mind. Gee, Joshua, that's super gracious of you. She's beautiful and blonde, and you don't mind that she's two inches taller than you. Then he says, finding ways to spend time together and worrying about the current status of our relationship consumed my energy. Look, if you're in a relationship, that's what that means. It means that your energy needs to be devoted to your relationship. So one of the things I want to point out about this book that what I found revolutionary about I Kiss Dating Goodbye is that there are so many women and girls that don't feel the freedom to not date. It is so deeply ingrained in our psyche that our purpose is for the pleasure of man and that we are not whole and that we are not complete unless we are uh, made it up basically. So what's interesting is I found this book to be revolutionary because I felt like it set me free from having to constantly be playing the dating game. Okay. And that's the point. If you, if you're going to date, it's going to take your time and energy. And I think that dating is good. I think that dating is healthy. I also think that not dating is healthy. I think there's, we go through periods and we go through seasons. And the point is, I think it's healthy to date because you're going to make a lot of mistakes and you're going to do a lot of things wrong. And then I think it's healthy to take some time off and just sort of focus on your own growth. And then when you've grown and when you've become a, a more developed person, then you can go back out and, and try dating again. Because the whole point of dating and the whole point of engaging in these relationships is that it, you're, you're practicing, you're getting better because eventually, theoretically, the goal is that you spend your life with someone. But even if you don't, the point is relationships, they help us grow and develop. So they're very, very, very important. They don't even necessarily have to be dating relationships, but relationships are important and they are an investment. So you have to recognize that. You have to realize that you can date, you can not date, but what's worse than either one of those things is people that they date, they date, they want a girlfriend, they want a boyfriend, but they don't want to, the, they don't want the time investment that comes with that. Um, that's cheating the other person, basically. So he's complaining about, uh, you know, how much this relationship consumed his energy and taking away from other things. Um, then he says, after a summer missions trip that kept us apart for two months, I ended the relationship. We have to break up, 
I said to her one night after a movie. We both knew this was coming. Okay, here's where the patriarchy comes out, right? He informs her, hey, we have to break up. And then he tries to justify it by saying, oh, we both knew this was coming. I can tell you right now by her response, she didn't know this was coming. Because her response is, is there any chance we can have something in the future? She asked. See, I don't think that she would be interested in a future with somebody that she didn't want to be dating in the first place. So she knew it was coming. She wouldn't be asking about the future. No, I said, trying to add resolve to my voice. No, it's over. We broke up two years after we'd met. Not quite forever, as I had promised. Okay, first of all, there's not, there's no problem that he promises forever at 15 years old and that doesn't work out. That's not really a problem. The problem is he didn't do any attempts at trying to make adjustments or set boundaries or take a break or take some time, all these, you know, sort of healthy things. Again, that's fine because he's 15, but this is part of the problem. If you, if you just give up dating, if you just quit dating, you don't get better at it. And, and one of the problematic premises of this book is he's like, well, I don't need to date. I'm just going to wait until I'm ready to get married. And then I'm sure I'll be good at relationship. Becoming good at relationships is something you have to work at it's something you have to practice and that comes from dating dating is essentially relationship practice so to me this idea of I'm not going to date I'm just going to wait and get married is very similar to somebody saying I'm not going to play football in high school because I might get injured and I'm not going to play football in college I'm just going to wait for the NFL, and then I'm just going to go try out for the NFL, or I'm just going to go play football in the NFL. No man would ever, ever, ever even consider trying out for the NFL if they hadn't spent years and years and years playing football, and yet somehow they think that they can just not date and then get married, and then everything's just going to work out well. This is what's so crazy about this book to me is... There's so much gold in this book and yet he'll turn right around and say something else in like the very next line that makes you go, I I thought you got it. Like what happened? So he says, every relationship for a Christian is an opportunity to love another person like God has loved us, to lay down our desires and do what's in his or her best interest. To care for him or her, even when there's nothing in it for us. It boggles my mind that it's like, that is so perfect. That is the the perfect sort of definition of what relationships are for and the, and the, and the problem and the struggle and the challenge of relationships. But the thing is, it's like he, there's no concept that you actually have to work to achieve that, that you're not going to just go out and put a ring on someone's finger and be good at that. Yes, this is what relationships are for, so that we can learn how to love others the way Christ loves us. We aren't just good at that. That does not just happen. That is something we have to work at. 
every day, sometimes for years before we really see genuine fruit. That I didn't quite get all the way through the first chapter, mostly because uh, I spent some time kind of setting the podcast up. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and close there for now. This is either probably going to be like a four-week series or an eight-week series. I haven't really decided yet. But on Monday, July 19th, I'm going to be hosting a discussion on Twitter Spaces, if anyone would like to talk about this. That will be at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, so 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. If you would like to um, participate in that, my Twitter handle is at Robin underscore thinks. So I'd love to hear people's experiences and if this helps at all, if this has changed anything, um, if this maybe causes you to maybe want to go back and, and reread the book and see if it's, you know, different now that you've matured, especially, I think this is especially true of people that have been sort of deeply hurt or damaged by this book or by purity culture. I honestly think that kind of going back and reading some of the books that we that we remember as being very damaging and destructive, when we read them with new eyes and with fresh eyes and with um, maturity, I think they take on a whole new tone. So anyway, Monday night, 7 p.m. Mountain. I hope you'll join me on Twitter.